Good morning. <clears throat> Preparation for today's message, we will be reading 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, and then we'll be jumping down to 50 to 58. You can find that in page 961 of the Bible's in front of you. <clears throat> now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on imperishable, and this mortal body must be put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Well, there's a man by the name of Vince Parochios, and uh, he lived in northeastern Connecticut, and him and his wife were sleeping one night, and he started to hear these weird popping sounds. Had no idea what it was, and it continued on and on and on. And I think it was the next day he got up and went downstairs into the basement, and his worst fears were confirmed. It was the foundation literally buckling underneath him. And as he went down, he found large cracks in the cement so big that you could put your hand through them and see outside. The only fix for this issue and to fix his home, he lived in a beautiful home, four-bedroom, colonial home, probably his dream home. But the only fix was to raise up the whole structure go in and dig out all the foundation and pour a new foundation. For him, it would cost $218,000, more than the $190,000 he paid for the house in 1991. The sad part is it wasn't just him. It was hundreds or perhaps thousands of people in northeastern Connecticut. They estimate that there is up to 35,000 homes that could be affected in some way by these foundation issues. And they discover that the issue came from one particular uh, concrete mill. And this particular concrete mill put a substance called pyrolite in their concrete mix. And pyrolite is known to expand when it's exposed to water or air. Sometimes it takes 10, 20, 30 years for it to expand. But all these homes have been affected by that. Even more sad, many insurance companies have denied claims, claiming it was faulty workmanship that caused the, the collapse. And so you have these ginormous dream houses that people have poured all of their money into, and they're virtually worthless. I remember a few years ago, uh, Stephanie used to do real estate work, and I remember going to a showing with her, and it was this house that was really cheap, 
And I remember walking in the door and thinking how nice this house looked. And we looked around, and it was just a beautiful house for the price. And we were just amazed at what a deal it was. And then we went down into the basement, and we saw that the walls were literally bowed in. And the windows were cracking because of the pressure of the foundation collapsing. It doesn't matter how nice the house is on top, if the foundation isn't good, then the house is worthless. In the passage that we're looking at today, some people in the church at Corinth, I believe, are trying to get rid of the foundation but still have the building, so to speak. They're still calling themselves Christians, but they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Paul goes as far as to question whether they've even believed in vain in verses 1 to 2. One Greek dictionary translates the word for vain as being without careful thought, without due consideration in a haphazard manner. And Paul questions them and he encourages them to hold on to the foundation if indeed they've ever had a foundation. And of course we know the foundation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see how Paul describes the gospel in verses 3 to, 3 to 11 as the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf in carrying our sins, we can have life and enter into a relationship with God. And so they're calling themselves Christians, but they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And Paul basically asks them, How can you believe this? How can you be Christians and not believe in the resurrection from the dead? Of course, perhaps they believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but perhaps they didn't believe that believers could be raised from the dead. He says, "If, if we're not raised from the dead, then what are we doing here? Is this gospel really a gospel? Is it really good news? He says, I've been pouring myself out for these people. I've been persecuted. I've undergone all these sufferings. And if there's no resurrection, I think I'm wasting my time. Because it would be better not to experience all this suffering. And he says, if there's no resurrection, we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So... Then when we get to the end of the passage, verses 50 to 58, which I want to kind of focus on today, we see that Paul declares the glorious triumph of the gospel. And he says not only is the resurrection not a hindrance to the gospel, but there needs to be a transformation. There needs to be a change. You know, from a naturalistic viewpoint, people would, you know, make arguments. So like, what if someone was cremated? Then how could they be resurrected? Or what if they were, their body was dismembered? How could they be resurrected? And yet Paul says there has to be a change. There has to be a transformation. The perishable cannot enter into immortality unless you put on the imperishable. Our mortal bodies must be changed. And he says, even if you're not dead when Jesus returns, you'll, your body will have to be changed until, to enter into the kingdom of God. And then Paul declares the victory of Jesus over the grave. And in essence, he taunts death and he says, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And of course, we know that death no longer holds a sting because of the gospel. The only thing that could ultimately harm us in death is if death transported us apart from the presence of God. 
And we know because of our faith in Jesus Christ, for those of us who have believed in him, death no longer has that sting. Death no longer has that victory because it simply transports, transports us into the presence of God. And this passage is very interesting, and I was thinking about which passage to preach on this week to kind of take a break from Acts for a little bit. And I've preached on this passage a number of times. Specifically, I've preached on the first uh, portion of this because you have kind of the clearest explanation of the gospel in all of Scripture. And he puts crystal clear what the gospel is. And then in verses 50 to 58, I've preached on that a number of times, specifically at funerals or memorial services or things like that. And I've heard it preached at memorial services. But the thing is... As I've preached on this passage, I've preached about the beginning, I've preached about the end, but I get to verse 58 and I always seem to just kind of pass by that verse. A few years ago, I was looking for a new vehicle, and I don't know about you, but it started off fun and then it got really frustrating really fast. Wasn't sure what vehicle I wanted, and so I went to all these different dealerships, and it was either uh, there were cars that I could afford, but they weren't very reliable, or ones that I couldn't afford uh, that w- seemed more reliable. You know, And I looked on Craigslist, and there was one that I really wanted on Craigslist, but the guy kind of gave me the runaround, and I was supposed to meet him on one day, and he said, can I, you meet me next week, and then next week, and next week. Didn't want to show me the car for whatever reason. And you know, I went and dealt with all these high-pressure salesmen that really just wanted to, to sell me a car and make a deal, even if it wasn't a car that I wanted. And so this was a good uh, few weeks to a month or two. I don't remember exactly how long, but it got really frustrating. And I got to the point where I was like, I, I don't know what to do. I, I need to get a new car, but not sure where to go. And so I finally found one on the Internet that this dealership seemed like a really good deal. And so I went there, Stephanie was at work, and my dad went with me, and I started dry, test drove this car and looked at this car, and immediately I'm like, this is the one, this is my car, this is the one I'm going to buy. And I kind of overlooked some things, like my dad was trying to get me to negotiate, and I had been frustrated so long by looking here and there that I'm just like, you throw in the remote start, you have a deal. So I didn't really negotiate hardly at all. And then I get the car back home, and I show it to Stephanie and had her ride around it, and I showed it to my brother. And they agreed that it was a nice car, but they got in, and they're like, what's that smell? It's a weird, like, smoke-type smell. What is that smell? And it turned out that the person who had the car before was a smoker, and apparently they had put, like, a lot of uh, product and perfume to kind of mask it mask it so you had this kind of smoke perfume smell in the car but I was so enamored by this car that this was the right one for me that I didn't even smell it it didn't even cross my mind and I think sometimes we can do a similar thing in regards to this passage we see the glorious good news of the gospel in the first part of this passage we see the victory over death in the last part and we don't even see the last verse verse 58 Verse 58 again says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What's even more interesting is that I have this verse 
on the plaque in my office. And I've read this verse a number of times, but I never realized the context, how this relates to the gospel and how it relates to the victory over death that Jesus proclaims. And I think part of the disconnect is the fact that this verse is in the present tense and the rest of the, the chapter is, for the most part, in the future tense. And so we go to a funeral or something like that and we're experiencing the reality of death and we don't want to think about the present, we want to think about the future. Because the present isn't very fun. And so we want to think about the future of what God is going to do and we have that glorious hope that Jesus is going to defeat, defeat death, but we forget about the present. But I believe that this passage informs how we view the present. And it shows us that the future does impact the present. And specifically, I think it shows us that our future fuels our perseverance. Our future fuels our perseverance. Harvard psychologist and uh, researcher Daniel Gilbert opens his best-selling book, Stumbling on Happiness, with what he calls the sentence. He says, the sentence begins with eight words. The human is the only animal that dot, dot, dot. And he says, every professor has to decide what that dot, dot, dot is. For him, it's the ability for human beings to think about the future. He said, the human being is the only animal that thinks about the future. Human beings think about the future in a way that no other animal can, does, or ever has. And this simple, ordinary act is the defining feature of our humanity. He says the average adult spends 12% of the day thinking about the future, roughly one out of every eight hours. We can imagine events years into the future. If more than several minutes are involved, no animal can keep up with us. So our future impacts how we live in the present. And as people living in a world that is decaying and dying and filled with corruption, I think that we're always fighting this kind of battle between progress and despair. Eric Erickson, in his uh, theory of psychosocial development, has different conflicts that he, he proposes different conflicts that people have at different stages in their lives. And the last stage that happens usually... Uh, he says about 65 to 68 years old, as you start to realize that you're coming closer to the end, there is this battle between integrity and despair. You realize that your end is coming and you think to yourself, did my life really matter? Did my life mean something? But I don't think it's just confined to the end of life. I think Every day, every time we we're confronted with death and corruption, we have to kind of fight that battle between progress and despair. We have to fight this battle of whether we're going to keep fighting or whether we're going to give up. I feel bad for Pastor Phil because a few months ago we had talked about fixing up the stair treads that are out to my left and in your right and uh, they used to be these red, reddish-orange treads that were uh, very slippery, didn't look very nice. And so what we decided we were going to do is we were going to paint them, so spray paint them and put a kind of an anti-slip coating on them afterwards. And so Pastor Phil meticulously taped each one off, and he put cardboard around them and spent hours meticulously painting these stair treads. And they looked awesome. The next week after 
uh, they were painted. People came in and remarked about how nice they looked and how they looked like they were brand new. And people didn't even know that they were the old ones. But if it wasn't one week after that, the paint started to chip off. And just a few weeks later, those beautiful sterotreads looked terrible. And all that work that he had put in was for naught. And you think about that, that happens in our life more than we realize. Maybe not on the accelerated scale that that happened, but we invest in things and then we find that they go through our fingertips. We spend days and months, years, working to make a living. And then sometimes, just in a moment, the stock market crashes and we lose our retirement. We get sick and it sucks away all of our savings. And so we work up for these things and then corruption kind of takes those things from us and those things decay. We try to eat well. We take vitamins and supplements. We exercise. But eventually our bodies start to decline. Maybe we get an illness, even despite our best efforts. We invest in our families, in our relationships, but sometimes those relationships get broken. And even if they're not broken in this life, eventually there comes a time where we all have to say goodbye to those that we love and care about. And so we invest in all these things, and yet they just slide through our fingertips. And there's always this tension between should I keep trying, should I keep fighting, or should I give up and give in to despair? And if we're not careful, we can give in to despair quite quickly. If we're not careful, we can get to the point of what Paul says, just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if there's a resurrection, the resurrection changes everything. If there is a resurrection, it means that the decay and corruption of this world doesn't have the last say. If there's a resurrection, it means that Jesus is going to come and he's going to make all things new. The resurrection provides hope that those who have labored in Christ have not labored in vain. That our lives are not futile. That our lives are not worthless, that they are building towards something, and that's the renewal that Jesus is going to inaugurate when he comes back. You think about the Apostle Paul, and think about all the suffering that he faced. He experienced some success, but he also experienced some heartbreak. Even in this passage, he questions and points out the possibility that these Corinthian believers have believed in vain. And if you look through the rest of 1 Corinthians, you see that they have gone so far from the gospel in so many ways. And he experienced all these aspects of death and corruption of living in this fallen world. And yet he staked his hope on the gospel. He staked his hope on the resurrection that in Christ his labor would not be in vain. In the famous words of C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed, only one what's done for Christ will last. He puts it clearer, Paul puts it clearer in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In this passage, Paul is talking about what we spend our time doing. He says if we spend our time on things that are not eternal, things that don't matter, even if we're believers and we're, we're saved, we won't have anything to show for it at the end of our lives. But if you do things that are eternal, if you're steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, you get to the end of your life and you get to heaven and you have something to show for. You see that your work is not in vain. Pastor and freelance author Mark Buchanan tells a story about how he was at a wedding and he met this young man, probably in his 20s, who was very healthy, attractive, had the world uh, at his fingertips, philosophy student. And he asked Mark Buchanan, he's like, so do you really believe this stuff that you're talking about? Do you really believe in this stuff about Jesus? And he said, yeah, I do. And so Mark Buchanan asked him what he believed. He said, I tried your religion for a while. I found it's just a burden to carry. He said, you know what I've figured out? Life justifies meaning. Life is its own reward and explanation. I don't need some pie-in-the-sky mirage to keep me going. This life has enough pleasure and mystery and adventure in it not to need anything else to account for it. He said, life justifies living. Buchanan said, good, very good, and I believe you. Today, here, now, feel the warmth of the breeze, listen to the laughter of those people, smell smell the spiciness of that shrimp cooking, look at the blueness of the sky. Yes, today I believe you. What a superb philosophy. Life justifies living. Bravo. He said, only I'm thinking about someone I met last February, Richard. Richard was 44, he looked 60. And had been living on the streets since he was 12. He was a junkie to support his habit. He was a male prostitute until he got too old and ugly and diseased for that. Now he has AIDS. He says, the last time I saw Richard was on a gray, rainy day in winter. I bought him a bus ticket and put him on the bus. He was going to his mother's home in Calgary. He hadn't spoken with her in almost 15 years, but he was hoping he could go home to die. Almost incoherent, he sputtered, I wish I'd never been born. My whole life has been a mistake. My whole life has been misery. He said, I'm thinking about Richard. I'm thinking about Ernie. Ernie was a man on the rise. While he was in his 20s, he already was the vice president of a thriving national business. He was tough-minded, hard-driving, prodigiously skilled, hugely ambitious. He was a superb athlete, a natural in any sport. He had a beautiful wife. They were unable to have children of their own, so they adopted four, three from Africa, one from Mexico. On the day the fourth adoption became final, Ernie got the results back from some medical tests he had undergone to account for some dizziness, blurring of eyesight, and tingling in his hands. The test came back with stunning news. Ernie had multiple sclerosis. He said, yes, I'm thinking of Richard and Ernie. And I have a question about your philosophy. How exactly do I explain to them that life justifies living? The young philosophy student had no response. He said he'd have to think about it and get back to me. I gave him my address and asked him to write me when he came up with something. He says, I never heard from him because life does not justify living. 
Eternity does. Eternity justifies living. Our future fuels our perseverance. There's a desperate need in our world for perseverance, for steadfastness, for being immovable in the midst of suffering, in the midst of death, in the midst of corruption. We just turn on the news and we see the corruption and the decay that's happening in the world and the the progress that it's going in the wrong direction. But we can take heart knowing that one day Jesus is going to remake all things. We can take heart knowing that Jesus said that He's overcome the world. He's going to make all things right. And nothing we do in Him will be in vain. Nothing we do will be in vain. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said this, The true meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you do not expect to sit. The true meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you do not expect to sit. That requires an eternal perspective. That requires seeing our future and what God is going to do. And even if we don't see the fruit, even if we don't see this tree grow up, we know that God will produce fruit through it. That nothing we do in Christ will be in vain. Our future fuels our perseverance. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast and movable, abounding in the work of the Lord, because in Christ your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the future that you provided for us in the cross. That our life doesn't end in the grave. That our life doesn't end separated from you. But we know that one day you're going to make all things new and that we can live with an eternal perspective. We can live in light of our future. Lord, I pray that we would be steadfast, that we would be immovable, even when it things it seem like they're going in the wrong direction, even when it seems like we should just give up, that there's no hope, that we would rely and trust on you, the one who makes all things new the one who brings life out of death, the one who shines your light in the midst of darkness, the one who's overcome the world. Lord, I pray that we would stand strong, that we'd stand firm in your love, in your gospel today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.